Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts. I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, have you seen Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest yet? Is that on your top oh watch list? Oh my god, what an opening. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, it's what, that's what I'm going to go do after this, and I've got a, just like a moral conundrum kicking around my head of, is this a Tango Blast film? Which is, a, you know, like something I oh, asked. Oh, no. No, it's not, is it? Like, Oppenheimer was like borderline, <laughs> but this, I feel, is like definitely off the cards. But no, then... I've not seen it, but I, I just, everything I know about that film suggests this is a Tango-free zone. <laughs> that's often the dilemma at art house cinemas, because you're rarely seeing a film which should be accompanied by minstrels or Maltesers. But you do it anyway. You do you. That's what I say. Well, yeah. I mean, this I, I'm always like sensitive to the situation, but I have been pushing it lately. I saw All of Us Strangers, which is a very sad film with a, a like a, the largest popcorn that Picture House would uh, provide me. So <laughs> took that in with me. The time I, I, I pushed it and I thought, is this a good? Is this a good fit? Was um, Titan eating popcorn during that and having a little oh, yeah. little cheeky rhubarb beverage? Didn't really quite seem like the right fit. Yeah. So that's um, that's for me to weigh up. But uh, yeah, I remember eating minstrels during Ang Lee's Lust Caution. <laughs> Um, which is like got so many sex scenes in that that there's inevitably a bit where someone looks at you and you're scoffing while while people are boinking on screen and it just looks weird. The optics on that are weird. Yeah, well, like the passion that those characters have on screen for each other, you have for your minstrels. So I think that people need to be <laughs> sensitive to that, you know, and um, and sympathetic. But well, uh, yeah, I like to try and eat sweets at the loudest parts of the film <laughs> yeah. to disguise my clicking jaw. <laughs> my jaw clicks when I eat minstrels. And so in Lust Caution, it's, you know, two people going at it quite loudly. That's when I'm just like... Dum, 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 dum. Yeah, bite, <laughs> biting down too hard and then a tooth just shattering in the middle of the cinema just with the most unholy yeah. sound you can possibly imagine. So, uh, <laughs> yes, okay, good. Fun little preamble there. We have Jeremy Peel back on the podcast. Jeremy, how's it going? Hello. All good, thanks. Yeah. I also saw Oliver Strangers the other day with half a hot dog and a large Pepsi Max. Uh, sort of, why half a hot dog <laughs> because i have a wife and uh, i shared it with her and um oh yeah but yeah it's, it's a weird um again you can't like there's, there's like one club scene in that film where you could feasibly quaff a tango and not feel weird <laughs> Uh, but it's a very narrow window. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's like, yeah, otherwise there's a lot of sad, quiet uh, scenes in like sort of near empty buildings and near empty London, essentially. So uh, yeah, I, somehow I made it work. I don't think Andrew Scott even eats in that film. I think uh, he <laughs> eyes up like, uh, you know, yesterday's takeaway at one point and decides against it and never eats again. Yeah, it's part of the uh, what people speculate is going on in that film, but I won't spoil it for the listeners who have not seen it. I, was say, I think someone should make a website which tells you like the time codes of when it's acceptable to eat in a film a bit like people who are like you can take a wee break here or this is where you, you can kind of insert your own interval or whatever that would be handy maybe have a drop down menu of these things are acceptable so for zone of interest you click on it and then it's like tango blast no dark coffee yes you know my understanding is that like um sometimes they have tried to warn against like bringing food into films like Schindler's List I think they banned taking food into cinemas I think they did that in respect for that film but since they've left it to us now to decide it just means every single one is a moral quandary and Oppenheimer really was borderline but I just thought you know what I'm gonna chance it even if I just do it when the bomb goes off I'm just like fucking right go and it's like horde mode kind of like with a big bucket of popcorn (laughs) 
That's definitely the chomping in it in that film. Definitely, I'm a- yes. imagining Samuel throwing a, a mushroom cloud of popcorn up in the air, just opening <laughs> his mouth, just trying to catch as much as he can as it comes back down during that moment. <laughs> yes, yeah, roughly the same. The, the, the sad truth is, though, I'm just such a greedy bastard. I can mostly get through the popcorn in the adverts. I mean, you got oh, yeah. you got a good so. twenty minute window there. Like I can chow down no problem in that time. Um, so yes, it's a pleasure to have you back, Jeremy. Are you enjoying your continued status as a sort of meme subject of the back page? Our listeners have definitely been toying with you lately. How are you feeling about that whole thing? Yeah, it's good. I said to, to Matthew on Twitter that it's um, I like that um, back page Discord users have only got like a side on photo of me to work with, <laughs> so they can flip it left and right. But there's no kind of like front on angles, which is <laughs> difficult when you mock me up into movie posters. So I appreciate like the extra effort that's. Um, made there also they're so quick like and reactive to episodes that it's like the first i'll hear of it will be oh here's us three and catherine in um a poster for ryan reynolds green lantern (laughs) Uh, and there's a chinese lantern in the corner and it takes me you know a couple of days to like to discover the context and uh, inevitably it's not full justification for what's happened but uh at yeah. least have some explanation. I think that was made before Matthew had even talked about that lantern on the podcast, which was, I've got to say, Matthew, a scintillating two-minute intro to last week's episode. <laughs> I, I mean, listening to back to that, I was like, wow, this is, this may be the best two minutes we've ever put in this podcast. But um, yes, um, Matthew, how do you feel about the way that the listeners are kind of like, I think you in particular, they sort of like, they they see you as a, a subject of fun for memes. How do you feel about that whole thing? I think there are quite a lot of photos of me out there for, for various reasons. So. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm easy to put into to things, and I've got a nice big head, so it's quite a good <laughs> head for sticking over the top of other heads. You don't have to like wrestle too much with dimensions, so I, I, I get it. It's absolutely fine. I'm, I'm not precious about it as long as they don't stick me on like anything inappropriate. That's that's fine by me. Sounds like a dare to me, but um, hopefully, <laughs> no, hopefully no. that doesn't backfire. <laughs> the thing is, if I ever see one where I'm like less less keen on it the second the back page podcast twitter account retweets it it's like oh well this is obviously acceptable now oh so no i may as well not make a fuss oh no should we go through some kind of meme approval process no, so I'm, no, like, I'm only joking that's fine what what makes me laugh is every time i see that that still of you from the metal gear solid documentary i laugh yeah every time i see that image knowing where it's from and its history and your imdb page there's a yeah there's a lot of like law within the law when it comes to you matthew so uh yes so jeremy we've heard, we've got you on for a, a couple of reasons this episode is all about how you write a video game magazine feature or a video game feature in general so obviously jeremy you work across um, print and online as a freelancer and me and matthew have done a bit of both as well so um we can speak to that but um fundamentally as well you are launch- you've launched a, a new project and i thought it'd be a great opportunity for you to come on and talk a bit about that so uh tell us about the peel perspective yeah thank you i appreciate having you give me a little space to to chat about it so it's a it's a patreon project and it's for my writing basically and if you're familiar with the kind of things i write you know vaguely what to expect the immersive sims and rpgs and driver and xbox 360 (laughs) curios and pc gaming classics and all that stuff but the idea is that it's kind of a place for myself you know as a a freelancer for several years now all of my stuff is kind of thrown in every direction to different outlets you know for somebody who theoretically does like my work it's kind of hard to like know where to go to find it all so the idea is I'll, i'll write sort of bespoke stuff 
for the Patreon and also I'll be writing a newsletter that collates, you know, all the other things that I've written that month um, elsewhere and talk about the process of making those happen. It feels kind of wild to to have my own tiny little business, I suppose. <laughs> Never had like my own venture before. Uh, so yeah. yeah, it's been it's been cool so far. That's cool. It's increasingly, I think, where media is going, isn't it? It's just less dependence on Google, which you know makes its own mind up about how to treat your content, and has obviously bent the entire sort of like approach to editorial um, around uh, around how it functions. And then, yeah, where that ends is um, currently a subject of a lot of discussion. And it feels like the sort of the old magazine model of you build a little silo and then people find you and support you you have a smaller audience rather than the biggest possible audience but you make it sustainable to create stuff within that ecosystem our podcast a little bit like that but do you think that's where things are going yeah definitely i mean even through the length of my career the kind of like deep dive features that are my speciality when i've worked on sites they've always felt like a bit of an indulgence like i've always had editors who really wanted them and who really appreciated them but they've the way the um the sort of google model for uh, an advertising model for sites works means that it's never the stuff that can keep the lights on it's quite heartening really like it feels like there are increasing numbers of people who want to seek out this stuff and fund it themselves you know as the back page patreon is testament to and you know magazines like a profound waste of time and you know there's a certain point where I was writing an article which was funded by a Kickstarter for a magazine. And at the same time, I was doing the PC Gaming Classics podcast for you guys, which were funded by a Patreon. And I realized, that, oh, okay, like we can legitimately make these things happen ourselves now. And then it only took me about 12 months to actually um, <laughs> you know, get around to doing it myself. But here we are. <laughs> oh, that's fine. When our Patreon, I think we talked about it for about I don't know a year plus, Matthew, before we launched it. It was a long, long old process, wasn't it? Oh yeah, we put it off and put it off because it's yeah. always it's a risk, isn't it? Put, you're kind of putting yourself out there a little bit, like just deciding the price of your Patreon. You have to put a price tag on yourself, and I wouldn't wouldn't wish it on anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a weird feeling. And like on the morning I launched the Peel Perspective, I was just reading and rereading the feature that I was launching with, like. Oh, this is a bad one. This is the first bad feature I've written in two years. And obviously it wasn't. It was just <laughs> like there's a lot of pressure on on you as, uh, you know, selling yourself as an individual. It's different to, uh, you know, being a part of a magazine where you're just part of the uh, proposition. But, you know, feedback's been really nice and I'm uh, less panicked about it now. Yeah, I think you're sort of, I think you're off to a good start. I mean, that's the thing as well. It's just like the podcast for us, it will never, I don't think it'll ever be enough to, live on by itself but it's definitely sustainable and it's a thing that we own and it's a thing that you know we'll continue to own you know no matter what might might happen sort of like you know with sort of jobs or careers that kind of stuff it's always a thing that we will have so that's how I try and see it it's like a it's a long-term investment in your in yourself basically so um yeah cut to a year's time where we're stuck in a really messy hall and oats style battle for control of the podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean we can't we can't rule that out basically and then I get the rights to like back and you get the rights to page and then we form separate podcasts so um I don't want games caught Yeah, I get that in the divorce. That's like the the child no one wants, basically. Um, you get the draft episodes. 
Okay, good. So, uh, Jeremy, what kind of games do you think you'll end up covering on the Peel perspective? Because I want it to be sustainable, it has to be the kind of stuff that I naturally lean towards, right? So it's, um, you know, I, I tend to write quite a lot about immersive sims, like Thief and Deus Ex and stuff like that. I tend to like revisiting... You know, if there's a new game from a studio, my natural inclination is to go, oh, what did they make previously? And to go and find that game and to work out how things have grown from that point to another. Um, you know, for instance, I'm playing the new Prince of Persia at the moment and I feel like the, you know, that's from the Rayman studio and I feel like that link is a little underexplored in um, most of the writing around it so far. So I kind of want to, like, dig into that and how... Uh, Ubisoft Montpellier got from there to here and you know I have all sorts of like obsessions as well with, with games like Driver and um, you know stuff that that kind of happened in the in the noughties so it's going to be a mishmash of stuff but like it's very particularly my taste and um, my natural inclination to look back rather than kind of constantly looking forward in the, the hype cycle I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm looking forward to Driver San Francisco month from the Beal perspective. That should be, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> should be good content takeover. Yeah, okay, great. Well, uh, where can people find it, Jeremy, and uh, and check it out? So it's patreon.com forward slash the Peel perspective. I so nearly said the back page then. <laughs> yeah, and if you find me on Twitter, Jeremy underscore Peel, then I will direct you to it there as well. Nice. We'll tweet it out as well. And um, Matthew has signed up for it. And uh, I had a PayPal error, which is why I've not signed up for it. That sounds like <laughs> a terrible excuse, doesn't it? But I promise it's, um, it's. but I think it just, I have, there's like a, there's like a whole thing where when you're a creator, it tries to, it, it, you have a dummy um, sort of like consumer account. And that I don't think actually like works properly. So I have to back you from the back page account. I'll try again today. But yes, um, those yeah. are my terrible excuses. <laughs> It's so, a yeah. it's a very specific excuse, and as we know, all all lies tend to be unusually specific. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I really appreciate. It. And uh, Matthew, you're the third person, you were right in there, my third subscriber. So that felt like a, a lovely vote of confidence. Appreciate Love. that. No worries. Lovely stuff. And uh, yeah, I uh, look forward to seeing how it develops. That felt very brief, Jeremy. Mm, nice. but you, can, you can keep bringing it up if you want to. Matthew, you're going to say something. I was just going to say how everyone knows how benevolent and kind I am now. <laughs> <laughs> All a lie. All a facade. Um, so yes. Uh, so before we get into the subject of this week's episode, Jeremy, what did you play last year that you liked? Anything you felt was unloved on the end of year list? I ask this because I think you do have that more slightly more pc gaming leaning sort of like taste and so or at least you know historically those kinds of genres really appeal to you so what ended up appealing to you last year did you feel there's anything that was was missing a little bit from the discourse it's weird because there were so many great games last year that there were games that were acclaimed but then just didn't couldn't or didn't factor into the end of year discussions because there was so much i feel like system shock did kind of end up being one of those games which was a hugely important one for me i think it i think it did get some nods towards the end of the year but understandably like you know Baldur's gate and zelda and all these other things ended up dominating uh discussion but this it's such a unique object that game because it it genuinely is for those who don't know like it's a remake it's beautiful in fact the most beautiful game i've played in quite a while like it has a sort of shimmering quality to it which seemed to like at times i was playing it it was so beautiful i could kind of feel like tingles in my shoulders it was almost like an asmr kind of like 
beauty mm. to it extraordinary kind of like turquoises and neons and oh it's incredible and um and yet like the level design comes straight from that 1994 game like it is legitimately recreated in the way it was which you know could have backfired terribly um, because you know there's so much stuff from that era which has not aged but it it turns out to be one of those fantastic sort of like dungeon maze uh, maze designs which are still really satisfying and you don't get many of those today so uh, yeah it really stood out to me in my memory and I think understandably it didn't really sort of get as much attention as it should have done by the end of the year mm. yeah i think i think that's right and i was hoping you'd, you'd bring that up when i um asked this question it's um what night dives up to must be pretty exciting to you right that seems like it's your the sort of jeremy peel quadrants they're hitting there yeah definitely it's like the 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 me and phil van yuk uh venn diagram it's <laughs> really like <laughs> they just sort of remake the things that we uh that we loved and um yeah, I'm really excited to see what they that team does within Night Dive, right? Because they've got the teams who remaster stuff, but they ha- now have these fantastic and now seasoned people who have made, you know, almost a brand new game. And uh, I can't really predict what they'll do next. Like, who knows whether they'll, you know, they could do um, a brand new immersive sim by themselves if they wanted to they could do like a 4k to rock like who knows what the hell they're gonna do so that's quite an exciting corner of games development yeah i think there's only 40 people at the studio altogether, and it kind of i guess that sort of tracks in the sense that well they probably i assume they had some kind of outside help with it but you know it, it tracks in the sense that it was it was in development for such a long time like it was 2015 it was that's when they basically started and then had the kickstarter campaign so long long cycle there um i'm pleased it worked out so well but i do agree yeah just it did get washed away a little bit in the um the discussion last year and uh probably didn't help that it was just it only launched on pc last year maybe when it comes to consoles there might be a good um good chance to reappraise it this year so uh yes and it's certainly one that me and matthew both missed so um yeah that's cool um i'm kind of sad now we didn't get a I'm picturing a Games Master style review where in the little graphics box, it's got like graphics 9 out of 10, and then it got me shoulders a tingling. <laughs> <laughs> Classic turn of phrase there. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, anything else, Jeremy, that you um, you wanted to highlight from last year? Oh, there was a great little game called Vember, which I think did get um, some attention <laughs> as well. But um, yeah. Uh, and that is it is the sort of game that that ordinarily might pass me by um i got it i got it for my wife and i know she's interested in kind of like indian food and cooking and it's it is you know part of the fundamentals of that game is that you are you are making these delicious meals and kind of like taking in the crackle of onions and uh sizzle of these delicious foods um but it's also this really effectively told um immigrant story in canada i think um yeah that and it's only maybe two or three hours long right yeah i I gotta say i only laughed then not because the game by any means but because matthew's experience with the game was turning it on. Did you say you just couldn't be bothered, Matthew? You turned it off. That was <laughs> one of the one of our very tired end of year episodes last year. I think you I just... just I just missed a couple of. You can fluff up the mini games surprisingly easily in that game. <laughs> I found, yeah. uh, and I couldn't bake some kind of, I don't know, sort of dumpling type thing. There was some kind of steaming 
device that I couldn't quite get my head around and thought, nah. <laughs> <laughs> I know the one. I would say, like, I th- I think sort of baked into the idea that, like, this is somebody rediscovering the parents or grandparents' recipes and not really knowing how to pull them off and sort of experimenting. Like, I think mm. you are supposed to fail to a degree. Um, but yeah, yeah, I can understand in the in the sort of like um, <laughs> the overwhelm of of talking about end of year stuff last year. There was just so much you couldn't really. Um, I can understand that like failing at making biryani wasn't really on the cards for you. <laughs> Is there anything you're particularly excited about this year, Jeremy, or anything you've already been playing from this year that you um, just got you buzzing? You've been playing Prince of Persia, right? Yeah, I really love that. Um, it's interesting for me because I'm not a big Metroidvania guy. Uh, I don't think I've played any Metroidvanias before. Um, and I knew kind of how they work and it functions in the way I expected. But yeah, it's it's really it's really cool to see some of that like um, emphasis on momentum and what Ubisoft Montpellier calls musicality to like the movement kind of translate over from the stuff they've done before to this game and just to see them get a win as well because that that studio has been working on beyond good and evil 2 for an unholy amount of time and obviously there's a like goodwill around that project has somewhat evaporated and it doesn't seem like it's been fun to work on so you know it's it's really good to play a, a great game from them um that they've been able to finish and get out there yeah, absolutely. I think as well. I actually will be curious to know if it. Do you think it will lead you to any other Metroidvania type games? Does it kind of create any appetite for you to go find those games where you get those, build up that power set, revisit places, unlock secrets, that kind of thing? Yeah, probably. I've heard people mention Ori quite a lot as a sort of uh, a natural next step from this one. Or, or Metroid Dread is the one that I, I sort of that was my journey into it. Basically, was I played a bit of Super Metroid. And a bit of Metroid Zero Mission, and then that, and then basically Metroid Dread was my first sort of like shotgun blast of that genre. And um, I would say that if you love that slide in Prince of Persia, it's got the same slide. Maybe Ori's got the same slide too. I don't know, but um... Ori's very acrobatic, but it's a bit a, a bit more sort of floaty. It's not really about like weight and heft that game bad, yeah. bad combat amazing platforming interesting whereas prince of persia i think has got great combat but it's, it's interesting i don't i don't think i've ever played a ubisoft game that's this tricky and i mean that in a as a compliment like it's yeah sometimes parrying is too risky and you are better off using the other ways in which uh you know your, your character can navigate a sort of combat arena like sliding beneath them jumping over them that sort of thing and it's it parrying carries great risk and that feels like there's a little bit of you know from software energy carrying over to to that decision but i find that really interesting because the parry window is so tiny so tight yeah. but they must have thought really carefully about how tight that window is for the normal difficulty setting. I don't know if you had a take on that, Jeremy, how they've calibrated the difficulty of that game. Yeah, for sure. Like it feels it feels right to me the difficulty, but it definitely is um it's a game where I I go to the there's a you know, there's a fella near uh, camp. I think you mentioned on one of the pods who who teaches you moves basically or like advanced stuff. And this uh, you can feel how high the skill ceiling is because I would take take a couple of lessons from him and be like, okay, I need to just absorb them now. I can't, I can't have another eight lessons because they won't go in. And then actually going out in the world and having fights, I feel like I'm just kind of flying by the seat of my pants and hoping that I will, you know, 
some muscle memory or just a, a little breathing room at some point will allow me to implement the stuff I've been taught by this guy. Like mm. it feels like there's um there's a lot going on, a lot you can learn and master. Um, but it doesn't feel terrible to um, to just kind of thrash around and figure it out during that phase either, which is a it must be a very tricky balance to get right. Yeah, I agree. There's there's just so much depth to that combat that you do only get from those tutorials. And um, what I found, it's a very slow process of me rolling out the lessons that I've absorbed from that guy into the combat. So I'm like, yeah. okay, when I am in the air, I can do this. And I know if I just take a beat while I'm doing a combo, it'll have a little bit more heft to it, uh-huh. that kind of stuff. And it takes, it takes genuinely, it takes hours for you to build the confidence um, to start trying that stuff and for it to actually, you to absorb it properly. So uh, yeah, I agree. Some really interesting choices made there. It's a good match for the length and like the, you know, the sprawling nature of the game. Because you, so it, you've got the sort of Metroidvania structure of like, oh, you're unlocking more abilities as you go, so those those will keep you entertained. But also, you are personally unlocking new levels of skill, ideally. You know, so you kind of you've got both of those things um, improving in tandem, which feels feels real good. Oh, absolutely, you're playing on Switch as well. Yeah, it feels like the natural home for it, right? Oh yeah, it, do, it feels like a magic trick. How nicely they've got it running on there. It's just so. Mm. It's so slick, like just sixty frames, and yeah, it's um a slightly soft visuals, I guess, but I think it's I, I just think it's beautiful, a wonderful game, and um yeah, I, I really a real delight. So um nice to have a entry of the top ten this early in the year, Matthew. That's uh that's good just to mm, get that ticked tick. off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now you just have to play nine other games. <laughs> <laughs> Got my fingers crossed for Norco two this year. So yes, um uh Jeremy, um is there anything else this year that you're excited about? Oh, I've I've got you one. I, I interviewed um, Jeff Vogel recently. He's been knocking away making Ultima style RPGs for thirty years, I think. Mm. Um, and I played some of his new one, which is the Gene Forge Two re- remake or remaster. Uh, and that that's really good. That feels like a sort of early Fallout riff, like very open ended, very atmospheric. And like a sort of good place for people to hop off Baldur's Gate 3. Like for people who don't necessarily need sort of AAA production values, that guy's got all this, you know, so much of the stuff that Larian does going on as well because he's been working with the same influences for the same length of time. Uh, so, yeah, oh. I think that's out in March. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that was not on my radar at all. So, um, okay. Well, uh, thanks, Jeremy, for telling us about the Peel perspective. Do you want to remind people again where they can find that? Yep, that's on patreon.com forward slash the Peel perspective. And I've nice. already noticed uh, a number of um, back page listener names on there, and that's um, hugely appreciated. Thank oh, you lovely. for the support. There has to be some upside to being a, you know, a, th- a sort of like comedy character, comedy side <laughs> character in the in meme sphere. So I'm pleased that's kind of worked out for everyone. <laughs> okay, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with the subject of this week's episode, how to write a feature about video games.
welcome back to the podcast. So in this part of the episode, we're going to talk about how to write a feature about video games, something I've not done now for about three years, um, but we'll pretend I still know um, how to do. Jeremy does it all the time. Um, Matthew uh, did it a whole bunch too. But Matthew, do you many, write many features these days? The Shutakumi piece last year was was a pretty chunky one. Yeah. I did an edge cover feature the year before. I do one feature a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is just enough time to forget how to write them and then write a bad one and then feel bad about it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. For context, actually, I don't know if you you feel comfortable sharing this, Matthew, but you've been writing a review um, for the last like few days and it has driven you to com- Alan Wake 2 style mania, basically. <laughs> like that's the process seems to have taken its toll. How, how do you find the process of writing these days? Horrible. <laughs> I write a lot in my day job, but it's a very different kind of writing. I've been writing more for video, you know, since I left magazines, but I try to do quote-unquote proper writing um, every once in a while, but it's definitely a muscle you need to keep using, and without that, I can feel myself struggling. It just, it's just so dead on the page, you know. It takes me many, many passes to get it back to what I would say is, like, usual or good standard right um yeah and it's 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 not like it's not like dispressurable to actually be like writing and thinking about games i like that that's that's fun and i've always enjoyed that but it does it does make me realize how sort of flabby my writing has got which always makes me feel sad (laughs) right right i I will say as a as a reader of your stuff matthew that doesn't you can't see that pain on the page like it's still thanks feels Jerry. Really that's good. very kind <clears throat> but that's but that's because i go through this horrible process with every piece of writing and sam knows this because he's always like why do you do it why have you taken on a bit of work you always <laughs> say this you always say you had a horrible time and i always do have a horrible time <laughs> this, uh, is, this is such a, mar- a marital dynamic going on there as well. so, uh, yeah. yeah sadly he's so, like yeah. you don't need to do it we've got the podcast the podcast is successful and you're right it isn't a money thing at all I just feel like I need to prove I can still do it. Yeah, <laughs> I I am, do feel grateful that it's something I've done most days for like over a decade because, you know, All the Strangers has a, a depiction of writer's block at the beginning and, and I'm very lucky that like I look at what writer's block depictions and I'm like, oh, I don't really recognise that. And I think it's because, you know, I've I've had to sit down and get something out like every day for so long and that's so much of that. Uh, you know that helps you so much basically mm. like it, it becomes infinitely harder as you say when you've not done it for a little while yeah i think as well that the thing is the weird thing is i think when it's a area of writing that i'm comfortable with i i don't fa- i'm a bit like you jeremy i don't really have any trouble getting things onto the page i'm, I'm actually the, tr- the trouble is i might kind of be bothered enough to edit it through to the point where i think it's good enough to submit that's the that's the real struggle for me the first draft mm. part I can pretty much get there, no problem, and very, very quickly. But um, yeah, oh, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, but but I have found that when I have to experiment with other types of writing. So, at the end of last year, I built <laughs> I built an application for a narrative designer job within Frontier where I worked because I thought, oh, I've seen all these X Games journos like move into games writing seemingly quite easily, and I've never quite had the same opportunity. And I thought, well, I'm already here at the company, so I'll try and build something here. Put together this application, I spent two weeks on like some very very like some short stories basically that were kind of my writing samples and I polished them and polished them and polished them and they took the job down the day I went to submit it and uh, withdrew the role (laughs) so it was like not worth it but 
I, I, in going through that process, I realized, oh no, I do still have this. It's just that when it's the type of writing I'm confident in, like writing about games, I actually don't struggle with it at all because I'm just so used to it. And I think that is it, really. I think the rinse and repeat factor is um, is the key factor there. If you've done it many, many times, and you don't, you don't spook yourself out of doing it necessarily, yeah. unless you're Matthew, of course. But um, yes, I just I like the idea that the Frontier HR team are like. Oh yeah, we took it down because we heard we had some real cringe coming from you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well that's the thing though. It does, it does feel like, it, yeah, just it feels like bearing all in a way. It's just so it's t- it's tough. It is tough. Yeah, it's like would I let a peer re- and I let I let a peer read one of those bits of um, writing, but not the other one, which makes me think it probably wasn't good enough. So uh, yeah, anyway, um, enough about that. So. This uh, features, uh, what are features? Maybe you've listened to this episode and you don't exactly know what the, the term means. If you do, obviously don't consider that patronising, but it's, um, you know, it's it's a kind of an umbrella term, really, for a bunch of different stuff you'll find in a magazine so or on a website. So an op-ed where someone writes, I think this game's a piece of shit. That is fundamentally a feature, you know, that, that you're reading there. But more traditional types of magazine features are like, cover features so you know the big feature on the big game that goes along with the with the cover there's features about you know specific subjects maybe like it's a technological advancement and they've got a few different um, speakers talking about it you've got list features as well which are obviously very self-explanatory you know making of type features maybe you see those about older games that sort of thing there are many different types of them and there's a a varying amount of lead times that they they require to bring together and a lot of the um a lot of the planning of a feature section for me at least was around what can arrive when what can you get in on day one and then what can you get in on like day 28 when the magazine should have gone to press but hasn't somehow still um so i wanted to dig into that whole process from basically from sort of conception to completion basically but i suppose to start with and matthew i'll ask you this first and jeremy i'll ask you but what makes a great feature fundamentally i I worry some of this is going to sound really basic bitch like when you say it out loud but crucially maybe compared to other writing you might find in in a magazine or a website i'd say at its heart is a a story like it has to have some narrative structure and it probably or it, it should try and take the reader on some kind of journey you know it isn't just a case of here's a load of information you know it's trying to kind of shape it into something more yeah i think the journey thing Matthew's touched on there is really important that it's you know it's asking for more of your time as a reader than a shorter thing would it's got to develop in some way have a starting point and ideally as a reader you should come out of it thinking I've never thought about that before and I've learned something and I feel you know nourished for that or um oh this expressed something that I have always felt about x game uh and now I can put words to it. You know, that sort of feeling, I guess, is the, like, platonic ideal um, yeah. of a feature. Nourish is a good word, I think. It's, you know, the other bits of piece in your in your magazine, You maybe your reviews will provide that. Your previews might a little bit. But the features are where, really where you want to nourish the reader. That's where, you know, yeah. they, they want to feel like the, the value of what you're selling them, them paying the six quid or wherever it might be to get the magazine is it it comes in that um that form basically so um yes and it should feel like the centerpiece or the you know the features should feel like the centerpiece of a mag like it's worth pointing out like i would say this because i'm a features guy but it feels like features are the showcase for a magazine they're like the place where you get to show people who you 
really are. But then I imagine also news reporters also feel like you know they're doing the uh, yeah. the most important work. It's, it's sort of ideal, I suppose, that uh, you know you feel your specialism is is the real deal and what it's all about. But that's how I do feel. It's interesting that that you say that, and one of the reasons I came to features a little bit later than some of my peers is that on Endgamer, it had cover features and it had a cover feature slot. That was often, though, just like a lead preview or a lead review. And anyone who read that mag will remember it was quite scattershot. It had a section called World of Nintendo, which was basically five mini features that that were each a spread. So there wasn't much space in Endgamer to ever do. You never really got like six or eight pages just to sort of you know, to, to craft something bigger, uh, you know, we maybe did that 10 times the whole time I was on that magazine, as opposed to like Edge, which has an established feature section, or PC Gamer, which had, you know, features in the middle, but also in its back section, long form writing, which would tick that box of feature writing. So I kind of, I, you know, I, I kind of, End Gamer raised me in, in almost like this sort of insane, like, box out culture where everything was like micro and very snacky and you know i think it was trying to capture the the energy more of like a um you know like a you know like a japanese games magazine you're meant to look at the spreads and go fuck look at all this chaos here which maybe wasn't the the best grounding in traditional feature work that's my defensive that's me being very defensive about my feature writing <laughs> that's funny sometimes when i ask you these questions you automatically put up some sort of like barriers matthew when you're talking about it like uh the way you do it which is funny funny you're so self-conscious about this stuff after all this time but uh yeah, yeah. it does it um, does make sense though that endgame and like the the personality of that mag was very much in the small stuff and all the little gags and whatnot and yeah. um, you're right like it does vary between different magazines and you know, PC Gamer, traditionally, I say it's like the voice lives in the features and also the captions. And then with Edge, it's very much like features are, are where we are sort of feeling. It's worth pointing out as well that as well as being the, you know, sort of like the the sort of centerpiece of the magazines in terms of how how they're written and the content that's being presented it's also how they're designed a lot of the mm. a lot of a magazine is templated by you know by design because usually it's only one person especially these days it's normally one art editor making the whole thing back in the day it might have been two or three um maybe four on some like a bigger glossier magazines but now it's like one person generally speaking so your preview section and your review section and maybe your back section and new section they all have existing templates they're still working designing them and making them look good but the features are completely original so how the imagery is used that sort of thing that's that's where you're meant to be wowed on a visual level as well you're flicking through the magazine and those pages are meant to be the pages that jump out to you and get you to stop and go oh what's this and then take a look they are a centerpiece in, in you know in all in all senses of the word i think um, yeah. so that's um mm. That's important as well. It's interesting. The tone thing's interesting as well, actually, because the thing I was going to ask next was what makes a less successful feature. And for me, it was always when uh, I sort of like, I got something back from a writer and the tone of it was so dry and un-PC gamer that it would have to go through just so much editing to get to the point where it felt like something that we might plausibly write on team. And I think that obviously that is just kind of part and parcel of like actually making a magazine. But I think sometimes when that process was just so exhaustive, I would talk myself out of the idea that it was ever a good feature to begin with. 
Right. Or sometimes sometimes we did features in PC Gamer where I thought, oh, was that was that quite right for this magazine? So I remember we did a feature on Steam Machines back when that was a thing, like in 2014, and it was just so dry and technical. And it was I ran it because um, we had like quotes from Valve, and you know anyone knows that speaking to Valve is very very unusual. So anytime you get to have them on the record about anything, it seems worth talking about. But I. I, when I finished like sending it, I was, you know, perfectly well written and everything like that. But I just thought, oh, was this quite right? So, the sometimes I think the times in which the a feature becomes unstuck is when, yeah, when either the it's um it, totally it maybe doesn't quite land where you want it to, or the subject is just slightly wrong for your audience. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I'd say the other like major risk is that the central, either the central idea if it's a more writer-driven piece, or the access, if it is a, I'd say, a more content-driven piece. I think I can make a distinction there in my head in terms of, like, if something's coming from, you know, I am a writer putting together this idea for you, or there is this thing that we want to cover, and so we're going to go and see it. If, if, the, if the content of either is too thin to sort of support the piece, mm. that's always really obvious. You know, there needs to be a certain substantial idea at the heart of it or it's or it's never going to work you know i know this from doing cover features where we've had bad access you feel yourself stretching the you know the handful of facts you have you're like i know i could do this in a 300 word preview better there's no reason for this to be two and a half thousand words but on the other side sometimes someone can come to you with like a a sort of passion project or something they're really into and they can sell you on it on their personal enthusiasm for the topic but when it actually comes to the writing, you realise that they maybe haven't thought too deeply about it or that their actual take is is a little bare bones and they're just restating it again and again. Like, we had a big retrospective slot in Nintendo Gamer. Uh, yeah, and it was a big piece of writing. It's like two and a half thousand words. It wasn't specifically a making of, though we did encourage dev access to, to, to give it uh, a bit more prestige, I guess. But... We'd sometimes get them back where it felt like someone's childhood memory, which you could probably summarise in a hundred words, written out to two and a half thousand, and it was just fucking death. Like, there's a, there's a really notorious piece of writing in Nintendo Gamer, again, which I won't name, but you <laughs> could probably guess it. If you read back through them, I'd say one stands out as being truly rank, which we got on the first day, and no kidding, I think both myself and Charlotte were rewriting it and taking swings at it all through the month because it just it just fucking blew it was so boring <laughs> it was our mistake for commissioning it in the first place but that's the big risk with features i think is not every topic is deserving of several thousand words i agree with that as well that's a that's a big risk when it's that higher word count as well isn't it if it goes yeah. wrong it goes really wrong so yeah the the access thing is interesting as well because that yeah that would shape so many things all of the worst cover features we did on pc gamer were when we had access that was just an email q a and it was you know like really you know pr-ish answers with very little insight together and i would always write those features because i felt guilty giving it to my team to do it because i just knew that the access made it such hard work to just pull six pages out of it so right yeah that's interesting that can that can shape us a feature to make it less successful as well um, yeah because on, just... on the design side as well with that when you get like three screenshots yeah that's rough and you can see a designer go i just i got nothing to work with here and i've got to fill 
like it, it can't just be a page of words and you're like well it's that's kind of what we got yeah yeah that would happens many times over jeremy do you want to jump in here i wrote a, a feature for pc gamer mag which was about death stranding's pc version and, and there were some kojima quotes for it that had been sent over um but they weren't good and they were very short and it, it kind of, I think it kind of left them in a weird bind where it's like we have quotes from Kojima, like you have, <laughs> we cannot, we can't not use them. But um, I think it was Robin who who came to me as like, you know, can you you like figure out a way to make this meaningful? And in that instance, it was like, okay, I need to find a focus for this that doesn't like rely on the the quotes delivering the meat. And you know, I used it as an excuse to dig into like Death Stranding as an you know, an argument that Death Stranding was closely related to sort of PC simulation genre and SnowRunner and um, Truck Simulator and stuff like that. And in the end, I felt happy, like, okay, I've I've said something here and it was worth the reader's time. Also, they got some Kojima quotes and you're just trying to avoid, like, that strain of, you know, it being visible on the page that you just don't have the access that you would have liked i can't remember what celebratory issue it was if it was like 150 100 200 i don't know however many issues there were of o and m our sort of philosophy behind the issue was that we were it was going to be full of like dream features like every writer was going to do the passion thing that they wanted to do so i did a big shutakumi interview and we did the sing kind of what happened to sing hotel dusk sort of shut down story i'm pretty sure it was joe Scrabbles, who wanted to do a wonderful 101 thing because that was big at the time and we sent all the questions to platinum we got back these eight one-line answers from cania and we were like well this really cannot be stretched into anything they were so disinterested and so there was just a box out in the directory of like oh and by the way here's some stuff cameo said about wonderful 101 and we just printed it there like as disinterested in the answers as he was in answering them <laughs> which i thought was the, the right way to go yeah. yeah did he just um send over some links to his tweets matthew basically just like <laughs> but they uh... were they were they were less interesting and thought out than his tweets yeah it was like i hope you like the wonderful 101 and things like that and you were like great that's the funny thing about not getting the kojima quotes he needed jeremy is that he's always banging on a twitter about the the minutia of his games particularly his modern games so i'm surprised he wouldn't want to give quite you know sort of verbose answers maybe just he treats interviews very differently but I don't yeah know, that's um kind of a surprise but yeah i wondered whether it's in you know they considered it like oh it's a hardware story you know it's a port story whereas the pc game it was the first opportunity to write about death stranding Uh, i don't imagine that kojima productions really saw it that way or appreciated that understandably yeah did that get they gave a game of the year at the end didn't they death stranding Um, oh yeah i was in the um i was in the like uh the discussions for that that game of the year at PC Gamer. It's the only one that makes that it I was sound in. like you were going to be game of the year. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was a contender <laughs> for the, the Kojima one out. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I, I remember being in the like the the end of year discussions for whatever year that was, and it it felt quite controversial, and it felt quite. Um, although I was rooting for it as well. I know Rich Stanton's a big uh, Kojima head, obviously, and and obviously saw the greatness in Death Stranding, and I think it's very deserving. But I think uh, there were certain team members of PC Gamer who felt a bit like, "What have we done? Like we've turned some kind of uh, irrevocable corner here." 
where we've made a uh, you know uh, the king of of PlayStation the uh, number one PC game of um, <laughs> of this year. So yeah, it was yeah. a fun one. I keep, I'm, maybe I'm being, you know obviously I don't know the personal tastes of everyone on PC Gamer, but whenever I see something which I know is a big rich game doing well on PC Gamer, I automatically assume that he's kind of steamrolled in there somehow <laughs> so like that they're stranding street fighter wasn't that really high up there game, greatest pc games of all time yeah i mean uh, they've got molly as well on that team is a big right uh, that's fan. the thing i don't yeah. want to attribute it all to rich but whenever i see that i'm like man he did a number on them yeah <laughs> i've never heard someone say rich was a shy advocate for the stuff he likes so yeah <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um it's uh, funny thing is though. I mean, I, while I wouldn't have liked to have looked in that comment section, I think in some ways that did demonstrate that. I guess we're slightly off topic here. That the what PC gaming is, the nature of it, and how it's has evolved over time, and the fact it was such a big success on PC on PC. So you know, it was it was quite a big story. I think it was you know one of the mm. first PlayStation games that made that journey, but it obviously resonated. And that you know, I think to make what you put in your feature, Jeremy, is part of that. It just you know the DNA of what. PC gaming part of PC gaming might be is present in that game and therefore it's adjacent to things that those players might find interesting or important so yeah I think that kind of makes sense um but yeah mm. like I say I'm just glad I didn't have to read the comments or look on Twitter that's um, that's good that makes yeah preserving my mental health uh, by not thinking about that okay so Jeremy because you are a long term long time freelancer I know obviously you've worked on staff at um, PC Games N and Tech Radar so you know you've done the editor side of things as well but as a freelancer, how do you pitch a feature to an editor? How do you get them interested or excited about an idea? Yeah. For the longest time, I couldn't, like, when I was a student, like, I was doing my magazine journalism degree, I just couldn't get anyone to tell me what a pitch physically looked like. I was like, yeah, but what do you what do you put in the email? <laughs> I just wish, I just, like, I remember asking, like, a really seasoned editor of magazines, and he just didn't really understand what I was asking for. Which was basically like, I needed to know you write a headline, you write a few sentences beneath that headline in the email. Ideally, the first one will probably lay out the basic idea, and then the following ones will give you a sense that there's somewhere for the story to develop, that that journey's actually going to happen when the feature is written. So, like, on a very basic level, a pitch is like some sentences that you send to an editor and hope that they um they see the value in it um you know that's particularly like it's trickiest when you're an unknown and you're you're really relying on getting across the sense that you have somewhere to go with a story and that it's like it's going to hold people's attention uh just through you know a very small pitch because if your pitch is too long as well then that's gonna that's gonna lose people and that's not useful to editors either it's interesting i got actually got when i was an editor i got so few genuinely good pictures or suitable pictures and i think that's partly because a lot of my freelancers were kind of knew that i would knock on their door if i had something that was particularly relevant to them um the things that were kind of created out of nowhere like i just i can't ever really remember a time that i saw like a two how i if i was to pitch the times i did pitch for um, features internally when i was at uh, different publications it would be like right i know that they've got probably a short attention span they don't have much time to read this stuff or they have to do something else so it's going to all be in like the top two lines basically it's going to be 
it's about this game or this set of games and this is what we're going to say in the feature and then here's the access I'll try and get, that sort of thing. As a freelancer as well, it, it helps to lean into niches because, you know, most um, most editors in their teams will have, like, the main bases covered on whatever their focus is, you know, if that's PC or, or whatever. And, yeah, it's, it's a weird spot as a freelancer where it doesn't make as much sense to to really you know keep up with all all the mainstream stuff as it does to really kind of dig into something they won't be thinking about because that means you can then bring them a pitch that they won't have thought of and you know is then a valuable addition um so yeah it's a, it's a weird spot to be in a freelance yeah i think as well that it's sort of in those kind of specific pitches you get to see how much the writer can demonstrate their understanding of what they're pitching for so yeah. Sometimes you'll get writers pitching to write specific parts of a magazine. So I imagine that um, <laughs> I would guess that this is just pure guesswork that Chris Schilling and Alex on Edge, the thing they get the most is probably pitches for Time Extend because, yeah. you know, it's, it's I'm not saying it's easy to write, but it's easier to write than going out and getting some access, right? You are fundamentally just playing a game again and finding some fresh thoughts on it. Now, I think that feature is, you know, very meticulously curated and um, and well done every month. But um, I imagine, that'd be my guess, Jeremy. Do you think that's probably correct that they get a lot of pictures for Time Extend? I'm pretty sure that's true, yeah. They tend to have, like, you know, a number of those in the bag in advance because it's not, it's not, um, it's not a hardship to find a good writer who wants to write about an old game. And those, yeah. those are easier pictures than... Um, you know a completely uh original idea that will carry you through 2000 words yeah and it's sort of you know it's yeah like you say it's not timely either so you can just bank them and then you can yeah. give it to a designer on day one and say please design this and that's a, again part of the consideration of how the the features you commission for a magazine are when can you actually get them in because uh when uh like a cover feature that could go up into the last minute while they're chasing down assets or uh or interviews for you but yeah, something more retrospective can go a bit earlier. The pictures that always switched me off as an editor were things that were just pure op-eds. I just always wanted a little bit of meat on the bones in terms of, you know, here's like, uh, here's a little, here's some comment from someone that feeds into this or something that supports this idea, or, or at least like an intent to go out and get that stuff. And maybe they'll only end up getting one out of the four interviews they tried to get for the piece to... Mm support it but even so it just gives it a little bit more meat on the bones that's what i would kind of look for when i was editing max um so what's some examples of features we found incredibly successful over the years matthew i'll start with you obviously i'm gonna say the things i have written about shutakumi over the years uh have felt very satisfying to me whether they were of like necessarily like huge worth to a broader audience like they're kind of pure pure vanity projects and things that i was personally interested in but in terms of actually having great access and that access genuinely moving forward kind of what we knew about a game mm -hmm. uh that felt to me like a bit of a sort of a gold standard of what a feature can achieve like uncovering something actually new is always a great feeling it's mostly on the interviewee to offer that stuff up but i think asking the right questions and having you know the right angular approach is you know a really important part of of good feature writing i didn't actually write this one but i one that i i really really loved and remembered from endgamer one of the few kind of non-cover feature features we did do was um quentin smith did a a really good bit 
breaking down the simple DS series, which was like a range of like ultra budget DS games. They were all numbered. There were loads of them, and it was about like culture and philosophy behind them. I don't think it actually had any developer access. It was just a hey, here's this weird sort of subculture of DS game that exists. Um, I guess not dissimilar to what he's been doing with Chris Bratt in terms of digging into like weird and wonderful gaming activities happening as part of people make games but sort of felt like a little proto version of that of just uh oh i'd I'd never knew about this thing and look you know look how wide-ranging interesting interesting that is um i was i always thought that was quite a enviable piece i was proud of a few cover features that i did i think uh sort of harks back to like what makes a successful feature you know so much of it being on access but not in terms of just you want more information on the game than anyone else but having more of a story to tell in terms of going to a studio and meeting people Mm. and like taking a physical journey to a place can uh, like show you things or give you ins to a story or give you color to a story which actually does help inform the telling of the, the information which people are sort of like you know predominantly therefore you know they want to know about tomb raider but the fact that you went to crystal dynamics and you saw their like weird office setup and the weird challenges they faced kind of gave me uh, you know when i did uh rise of the tomb raider uh i remember it gave me this little sort of framing device about you know the idea of these people kind of putting this character through hell as an adventurer but then they had this quite sort of weirdly inhospitable office because of uh, these great big windows, like they were just bathed in sunlight, and everyone worked under these these huge like parasols above their desks. And I remember coming in, seeing all these people hiding under parasols, working on this thing, which is about like facing the kind of raw elements, and that just kind of instantly gave it like, oh, here's a bit of a framing device here, which makes this seem unto me much more interesting than it would be just me telling you what I saw in a Tomb Raider demo, which could have happened anywhere, you know, or when I went over and met the Dragon Quest team, I could have had those answers in an email for sure from that interview. But seeing how Yuji Hori carries himself in a room and how other people act around him, this legendary figure, you know, person behind one of Japan's most important gaming series. Next to him is the composer, you know, uh, this very aging guy, one of his peers. And then you have the young producer who, you know, truth be told, probably made most of the game happen. And the kind of dynamic between them was quite kind of revealing in terms of mm. how important Yuji Hori is as a figure and where he fits into the development process. And that gives you just, oh, here's the colour. This is this is a bit of like human interest stuff. And those to me always felt, you know, I, I didn't get to do many of those things, sadly. But, you know, whenever I did have the opportunity to go somewhere and, and see something, it's as dumb as it may sound, but from the second I was on the flight out, I was in metaphor mode or... I, I want, you know, anything that happens out of the, you know, is there something here that happens to me that I can sort of work into this just to, just to make it seem a bit more, you know, engaging and original? They always turned out quite well because of that. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I agree in terms in, like on, on actually physically getting to go somewhere, which, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful that we have Zoom and whatever that allows us to reach people that we would never reach otherwise. But 
when you get those opportunities to go and like drink in a place and you know just feel the vibe in a room during a conversation and see the facial expressions and how people work like that's all potential material for a feature and um i went to visit dam busters in nottingham uh last year this year not that long ago and they that's the studio that was originally the time splitter studio uh and then it was a crytek studio famously went unpaid for some months and uh, and is now dam busters and has put out dead island 2 which is like a well-received really good game and you know there's a story of a studio that has weathered numerous cataclysms and in in that studio they had big models of la styled zombies uh you know to kind of you know dead island 2 sort of thing uh, but they weren't even from Dambusters' version of that game because Dead Island 2 has been through, um, you right. know, a number of renditions. So those models were from like an E3, uh, one or two versions of Dead Island 2 ago, like that a different right. developer had been making. And it just felt like, <laughs> I think me and you, Matthew, think in the same way of like, you're looking for those metaphors. And that was one of those moments where I was like, you know, this this tells the story of this developer which is still here despite all these you know terrible shutdowns and cancellations that have happened over the years uh, they're like mm. they kind of pulled stuff together and, and made something good of it the other one that always sticks out to me basically when they revealed Baldur's Gate 3 they revealed it to a small handful of UK journalists and we went to Sven's house like you know his actual house mm. and he showed us the trailer in his living room and then we had a barbecue with him and his family and then played some D&D in their back garden it was so sort of personal and small going on you know knowing what Baldur's Gate 3 would go on to be like I didn't really know how to kind of like tackle I felt like it almost was uh invasive in some way mm. to kind of talk about it you know I don't want to talk about this guy's house that seemed weird <laughs> or like the fact that his you know wife gave us some sausages you know, that's it, it, it but at the same time like the whole day i was like this is so rich with writing potential for like talking about this game ultimately i think what i decided was Baldur's gate 3 was such a big announcement i just didn't really want to get in the way of it too much in the piece mm-hmm. i just wanted to i wanted to put the interview first and the actual information i didn't think rps wanted him me kind of bollocking on about drinking you know a belgian beer in a nice back garden while looking at he had a bit they had a big dog that for some reason was um like penned in i think it had been naughty like done something naughty and the whole time i was looking at this big massive dog thinking i'm really glad it's not out here being like naughty around me because i don't think i'd like that um but these are these are yeah so i just had to like eat all that information um in that case so you do have to judge these things and now we know that dog was a shape-shifted druid yes <laughs> yeah it's um it's funny yeah because it's always it, I think I took it for granted when I did get to go to a studio and and you know walk around a little bit because obviously you are 
there are normally restrictions on where you can go unless you're visiting a you know a, a really sort of indie outfit like um you know hello games when they made no man's sky was basically next to like a, a sort of very small mom and pop uh sort of car repair garage operation so it felt like basically like a renovated house when you went into the studio and things like that do make great color especially when the game was you know p- mm. pitched as this sort of like giant killer future of games kind of thing however it turned out you know we, we sort of know where it went from there but yeah it's um that stuff i don't think i really like understood how valuable that was and then when the pandemic happened and and now i feel like studio visits are a bit less common i think that stuff probably has more value than ever because it's, it really mm. is a way that you can distinguish a, a piece isn't it from a, from a typical preview because so many previews in the last few years have been done digitally that yeah i think um getting to see a studio in this sort of trying to embed that experiential element is if i was still in journalism is something i would totally do um mm. but yeah okay so in terms of features for me so my all-time favorite magazine feature in a, in a games magazine is edges 200 200th issue the making of playstation feature they did which i think got quite a lot of attention at the time they did 200 covers for that issue i think as well so that was like a big operation i may have even mentioned this feature before but it was just that they spoke to basically phil harrison and a few other uh, relevant people about how playstation was created in the 90s and they even featured um sort of logos like unseen prototype logos and prototypes to hardware things that had never been seen outside sony before and so hmm. genuinely amazing there's like a big um there's a photo of about i would say like i don't know a hundred different controllers like you know like sort of they've been like 3d printed basically just next to each other as they tried to figure out what it was and you can see the the progression of how they got to the you know uh whatever the playstation pad was called before it was called the jewel shock mm. the playstation controller i guess um just an amazing journey and yeah some of the um some of the access is really good um uh there's like a a, a story that that has always stuck with me. I guess I read this 15 years ago and it's stuck in my head all this time, but Phil Harrison talking about how Ridge Racer was clearly the standout game um, amongst the Japanese launch games for PlayStation. And um, it seems so unlikely that the PlayStation was going to be a success at launch because they just didn't have those killer titles. Then he mentions uh, he was at the studio after being demonstrated Ridge Racer. Uh, Phil Harrison, he goes, it was almost an afterthought. One of the men demonstrating it asked, since I was there, would I like them to show me another game they're working on? I went, yeah, sure. I said, what's it called? And they said, it's called Tekken. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's like history being told that like i just that's a piece of his gaming history that's as far as i know is not anywhere else except for in this one magazine feature and i love i love that as a as a this is like genuinely a you know a seismic shift occurring in games moment captured in sort of print form this is exactly what you know magazine features are meant to do i think so um that kind of that stands out to me there are so many over the years but that's that's one that really just like uh, in my head is that the platonic ideal of access things you've never seen before stories being told about something in the past that's still relevant to the present it kind of has everything really um jeremy what about you what are some features that you 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 love or or like Mm. one i I think of from a couple of years ago which was like a remote interview situation that worked out well um i pitched to pc gamer how dungeons and dragons shaped pc gaming and the big get for that interview was Warren Spector, who by that point I had written the oral history of Deus Ex and he was like the big sort of like, uh, you know, silhouette in the middle that I hadn't managed to nail down. But for whatever reason, I had managed to get through to him for this thing. And, um, you know, I also had like one of Bioware's founders in there and somebody else as well. And it, it like, it felt like, 
one of those features where I got to, um, you know, do an angle that nobody else was doing. And like, I got to demonstrate like, look, here's Warren Spector's influences. Here's like the, the, um, the D D games he played DM'd by a famous sci-fi author when he was growing up. This is how we got immersive sims. This is how we got there. And then move on to Bioware and go, look, this is how we got companions in RPGs and, and all this kind of thing. Like this is how we got Mass Effect and and like really sort of demonstrate how we got to from A to B. Like that felt like a good one for you know, that I felt like I kind of built it from whole cloth to use the American term. Like there was there was no access for me there beforehand. It was not a story anyone was asking me to tell, but I like I invented it and it and when I did the interviews it turned out there was, you know, a lot of meat there and like a genuine story to tell. Also just like a, a great moment to be able to tell that kind of story but as like the you know, the sort of like I guess percolation of of D and D culturally, but also just, you know, obviously Baldur's Gate three and yeah. the sort of like moment we're in now. It just yeah, um I imagine that's a fairly a fairly timeless read. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think Jeremy in general, like I enjoy following the sort of trajectory of your features. I think generally speaking, if you go to PC Gamer or Rock Paper Shotgun, look up your byline and you'll see a, a bunch of like, you know, I would say like peel ass features in there. Sort of like <laughs> chat, chats with, you know, sort of like leg, like heritage kind of or legacy PC gaming developers and, you know, drawing attention to that kind of thing. I really enjoyed your interview with um, James Olin uh last oh, yeah. year as well um and just like is the, is exodus the game that he's working on that's the one yeah. yeah so at the time it hadn't been revealed um uh, but yeah he was obviously deep into into working on that and yeah like he's responsible for so much of what we think of as as bioware dna and was just um this guy in canada who ran three D games simultaneously and then yeah it sort of just reached a point where you know, half of Bioware stuff were were playing in his his tabletop games, so it felt weird that they didn't hire him. I think <laughs> that's the yeah. deal. Yeah, it's a great piece. And I, actually, I'm surprised Exodus did get a bit more hype off the back of the Game Awards thing because it seemed like it was what a lot of Mass Effect <clears throat> fans have been asking for in some ways. But um, yeah, yeah, I, oh. long way to go on that one. But yeah, okay. So, what are the challenges of writing a feature, Matthew? What as the the man who seems to struggle the most with the writer's block of the <laughs> the three of us how what do you think the challenges are the dream scenario is that you have such a huge amount of content out of a interview subject or you have all you know you have like all this gold but then the challenge becomes and it's it's kind of a nice challenge to have i guess is what you put in this is actually also truer of reviews where all these ideas and opinions and takes on a game but fundamentally you're like well i have to i have to pare this down you know i have to get to what actually matters here and no one knows you know what they haven't read you know no one knows what didn't make the cut and that's always the thing i've struggled with definitely in reviews really in features when i did the shutakumi piece for a profound waste of time you know we talked for like i don't know an hour and a half you know there was just so much stuff there you know what's what's really relevant what's really key and i i, I found that maybe i didn't necessarily get it right first time you know i'll be quite open that that's you know the hardest i've been edited in a long time was that piece mm. by simon parkin because that's that's the role he was playing they kind of brought simon in to 
sort of help with some of the, the editorial. He was quite kind of rigorous, not in terms of like, oh, this this just isn't interesting or, or relevant, but like how I'd treated the information. I'd, you know, maybe this is getting lost in the weeds a little bit, but you can sometimes like over rely on quotes. Let someone just sort of, you know, talk, talk at great length when you could probably summarise what they said a bit faster and make room for something else a bit more interesting and I'd, I'd definitely done that, you know, I'd, I'd used kind of Takumi as a kind of crutch. Maybe that was me being a bit starstruck. Maybe it's me being a bit of a, a bad feature writer. Who knows? <laughs> the other thing is judging what's going to be relevant for a broad audience. Again, with that Shu Takumi article, what, what it eventually was, if, if you've read it, is a quite broad making of it's like the story of ace attorney from its early inception to it being released and then a little bit on its legacy and what it means to takumi and that's absolutely fine i think for that publication that's what caspian really wanted us to do to me i'm like if i'm gonna have an hour plus with shu takumi i want to kind of pick up from where i left off with those previous features super hard super nerdy and knowing not to do that understanding the brief and understanding the audience may sound super obvious but there's a lot of temptation to not do that yeah i sort of see there that it's tricky as well because you know found waste time is a relatively new publication as well so it's sort of like you know their sort of their own style their own approach to doing things it's you know it's 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 going to be in a more sort of like larval form than it was for Edge, Mag- Edge, for example, right for Edge, for example. It's just a very different kind of like, um, yes, kind of a run up to take. So yeah, that's interesting. Okay, Jeremy, what about you? What do you think the challenges of writing a feature are? I, I guess I think the main one is structure, because typically, like these features are going to be quite a bit longer than your average, you know, internet piece. And you, when something gets that long, you have to actively work to build scaffolding for a piece basically to like so that it makes sense and it holds the reader's attention and it doesn't get muddled and it delivers on the promise of what you said it was going to be about like there's there's quite a lot to do there and you know you can be writing something and thinking like okay if I'm here now where 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 am I likely to be in 500 words time and where is that going to segue to next after that? Like you're jumping between mm. these subjects, trying to make sure it's entertaining all the way through and that it gets you where you need to go in that long journey. So I feel like there are, there's kind of a whole skill set there which doesn't really come into play so much when you're writing like, um, you know, short news stories and stuff like that. There's There just isn't the room to get really lost. So that is, that's tough. That is tough. Like you say, if you you know there are certain points you need to hit along the way, and you want it to form part of an, an overarching narrative, and, and then you have to decide what is important to this narrative and what can be dropped from this narrative, even if that risks it being maybe a, a good quote that's maybe slightly unrelated to the thing that you're talking about. It's uh yeah, the structural challenges of it are are, are significant for sure. Um, when when interviews are a part of it. Yeah. Um. Okay. So. On the preview features side of things, how hard is it to pass games before they're released, which often forms part of how a feature is written? Because what's interesting is when you're writing a cover feature, the access you get, you can get that at any point along the line. So it might be you get 
an interview when a game is announced and you know you are the first person to ask about that but therefore there is very little material to base your questions on or you might be doing it very deep into the sort of publicity cycle where you're getting close to launch and you feel like you've got a good idea of what it is but then maybe it'll come out and it won't be what you thought it was or Mm. Matthew what do you think the challenges of that are? Yeah, that's a fucking nightmare. Um, <laughs> it, it, it made me think, actually, of writing about Mass Effect Andromeda for OOXM, where I was at E3 and I managed to bag like a half an hour interview with the creative leads on it. It had just been announced. I don't think there was anything about it. You can sit there and go, I'll just ask you a load of questions as if it was just Mass Effect 4 as we know Mass Effect to be. Is it a third person shooter still? Does it still have these biotic powers? You know, da 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 da, this, that, and the other. In that case, maybe a bit waftily, but I, I remember trying to make it about more where they were coming from as people and what interested them most about Mass Effect and what interested them most about space travel and sci fi to give an idea of like, well, you know, is it in good hands was kind of the, you know, I, you almost have to kind of frame a new question for yourself to give it some direction. Yeah. Where's this coming from? Who are these people? Rather than what is it specifically going to be? Because, you know, they weren't going to go, you know what, Matthew? Yeah, we're going to tell you all about this game, which isn't going to come out for three years. It just, it just wasn't going to happen. That is always difficult. Being on a fact-finding mission for something which you have no idea about Jeremy, what about you? Because you've you've put, you've done a fair few of these features as well, right? Yeah, there's an art as well, isn't there, to kind of like knowing what to forgive and not focus on when it, you know, often we see early builds of games for previews. So like, it doesn't really make sense to write in a feature. This game had no icons on the interface, and if it launches in that state, then I will be very disappointed because right, it's obviously right, yeah, not going to yeah. launch with no icons on the interface. <laughs> Uh, but at the same time, you can be caught out by stuff where, like, you know, you might be assured that oh, performance is going to improve by launch, and then ultimately it, it's not significantly improved. But you can't, you can't project ahead. You can't predict the future, so you have to kind of, in many instances, give developers the benefit of the doubt and hope that readers understand that you're seeing things in that in that kind of limited context. And like, look, we're gonna get the full story when we review this when it's out and that's that's just the way these things have to be there's also a weird aspect of previewing stuff is like a sense of responsibility for like conveying what the game is properly like i'm i've been working on an edge cover feature this week and that's quite an unusual um press trip scenario in that usually like you're not the only journalist on a trip right so there's you know, there's various interpretations and tellings of this game that all come out at the same time when an embargo hits. Whereas in this case and in a couple of others I've had before, I'm the only person going to that studio. That studio is telling me, this, you know, the story of that game, what it is, how they've worked on it over years, and I am then the mouthpiece to, like, like this game will be announced via my piece that feels like quite a heavy responsibility. Like, I've got to make sure I get get right what the game is and that I've fully understood what I've seen. And uh, how is that Princess Peach game? <laughs> <laughs> it's weird because, like, you know, I've, I've only had, like, very good experiences with that situation, but it feels quite high pressure to go to a studio and be sort of like, you know, people are conscious that, you know, you're, you represent 
the like the breaking open of this big secret you know this is this is the point where the thing that they've not told anyone about for years goes public and i'm the guy they've got to they've got to get that across to like risky business yeah yeah (laughs) so that's kind of the most sort of high intensity version of of a preview i guess the other thing as well is that you know edge is read by game developers and the cover having that cover still means a lot you know that has a lot of cachet to it so yeah it's still significant for sure um when you're the tip of the spear have you ever had one of those sort of scenarios samuel the first look a genuine first look uh a few times so we had it for i don't know if we were vet we were first first but i think we were close to first with total war warhammer for example but in some ways that's a known quantity right people know what total war is and you know warhammer it's very much a chocolate and peanut butter situation that one so that felt relatively low pressure um i'm trying to think of other times this has happened i saw actually i would think we were uh, very first, I'm not so sure about, but I was really close with GTA 4. Um, mm. No, that's not true, actually. That's not true. We saw we saw it in action for the first time. We were some of the first to see it in action for the first time, and they didn't release a video of what it was, so we had to write what it was. And so that felt intense, because you're trying to relay this narrative without people having a visual aid other than screenshots. That was tricky. Um, cool. God, that's what... I, I love going back to a game where you've had to do that and then seeing the thing again and being like, oh man, I, I got this really that really wider the mark or I forgot that. I had that with Rise of the Tomb Raider. In my preview, I'd say 10% of the details were a little bit off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a yeah. little bit misremembered the animals she fought and some of the things she'd got up to. <laughs> and it was just, it was quite a, like a, oh well. And it's kind of... A, I, I, I thought it was quite endearing, but... <laughs> I, I found it really stressful as well when... Um... <laughs> We as a as a PR, it's quite stressful because you hope that they they understood everything you told them, or that they spell every character name right and that sort of thing. And when it goes to print and you can't do anything about it, it's sort of like you're sort of there thinking, ah, oh, damn it. And I think that yeah, this thing happens in reverse as well, where I'm sure they are reading this stuff nervously, thinking, oh, I hope it I hope it kind of turns out all right. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's um, <laughs> gosh, do I have any other examples of this? I was just scanning the PC Gamer covers here. We sort of ended up doing games that were too big. We sort of like were there, sort of like when they announced things like Just Cause Three and things like that. But again, kind of a known quantity. Um, we did have this when one of the big covers I worked on on PC Game was like Civilization Beyond Earth, and we were the we were genuinely the only people who had seen it. So we became the number one resource on the internet for it. So like the Civ kind of like Reddit was breaking it apart and all that kind of stuff. And we just had all these details and yeah again it feels quite high pressure it's interesting because there was that was also a point in that game cycle where there was a lot of optimism for it and then when it comes along at launch people are just not into it but at at, at announced is that interesting thing of they're essentially trying to sell that they've made a spiritual successor to alpha centauri Mm. and also a modern civ game and so that pitch is very exciting so when it's early on in that process all you can do is be optimistic about what's to come and then the reality of the game might end up being something else. When I was a writer, another one I had was, I think we, I think we were like among three, I think there were only three outlets who'd gone to see Call of Duty World at War. And that did feel quite intense because uh, we had the cover and I think that it was sort of like, it was a, it was a Treyarch one. So it was, the, and it was the first game that was coming after Call of Duty 4. Um, and I don't think I, on the ground there, passed what a sort of like a a big deal it was that 
there was a follow-up to this game coming the next year from a different developer, but they were using the same tech. And this kind of began the sort of like, it felt like this was a sort of beginning of the end of the, you know, the original Infinity Ward thing where they would go off and form Respawn. So this is very, it's very intense World War Two game. Uh, but yeah, that, that was quite intense in some ways because it was like, it's using the same tech as Modern Warfare. But it's gone back to World War Two, which I think had started to be perceived as this kind of like, oh, we've seen too many of games in this kind of setting at that time, and um, yeah, then it was, and it was also that thing of like, Treyarch knew they were making a game where they would be compared, sort of like apples to apples with uh, Modern Warfare, and so they mm. felt like they wanted to put their mark on it, that sort of thing. They kind of want to sell to you that like, this is the next one that everyone will play, but they, they're thinking if if the Modern Warfare element is the thing that really tapped into players interest then we'll going back to world war Two do quite the same thing and then i think the fact they kind of move it forward a little bit to black ops suggests that it took them a little bit of time to get there but you know treyarch are now the primary developers of call of duty so mm. i don't know that's i guess like smaller scale though uh, uh, you know it's a i guess it's a slightly different deal it's a very waffly answer but yeah jeremy you've written a lot of old school making of type pieces now what kind of response do you tend to get from personnel who worked on 90s or noughties classics have they started to know who you are because i find that I mean, this is always pretty much true, but when people are out of the kind of NDA working for a big developer zone, they can t- they're can generally more candid, they're well, well, well willing to talk about stuff in most cases, and you get a bit more of a different sort of response from them than you would if they're part of the PR sort of hype cycle. What, how do you find that whole thing? Yeah, it can be really nice where like people aren't, aren't used to being asked about the game, like it kind of falls out of public memory. And then, yeah, we've come back around to like, oh, this is a this is a 30 year old classic and and we want to know how it was made so these are people who haven't been interviewed by games journalists for decades if ever you know i I can yeah that can be really like a positive experience of them kind of actually getting to tell the story of this thing yeah there's certain figures like that i've kind of repeatedly interviewed for these things now as well like austin grossman who's now like a successful author also worked on deus ex and system shock and trespasser so like i've kind of i've kind of ended up with some of these people who are like big personalities who don't get interviewed but you know for modern stuff by games journalists and i kind of realized like oh there's this person is full of stories and is fun and expresses things in a fun way and like there's there's just a lot to to dig into here and i want to keep coming back and sort of you know sit at their knee and and hear them tell their anecdotes do they ever suggest stories to you like oh man one day i should really tell you about x things come up and people say oh you should really talk to this person as well like oh yeah i did not i did not think of that like one person i haven't talked to but comes came up a lot in system shock stuff was seamus blackley who Right, didn't really work on System Shop, but like his physics systems were the basis for it, and you know he went on to be a hugely important figure in like how consoles are made, and um, so like you end up with this sort of like little black book of oh yeah, I, at some point I will want to move on, and with the knowledge I picked up there, speak to this other person and find out where they fit into this whole thing. There's also stuff like, um, you know, like I've interviewed John Romero a few times and I always feel like I want to be especially attentive when it's John Romero because he takes like an active interest in the kind of history making around Doom and Quake and all that stuff. Like yeah, yeah. he's he's not shy about like coming to an out and being like, 
you've actually got this slightly wrong and this is how it happened and um not that i don't take care with like every story i write but i'm aware like yeah, if yeah. i get this wrong john will call me out on it justifiably so <laughs> this is the other thing about like writing about very old games is that people's memories start to fail as well like under as ask anyone to remember something that happened 30 years ago and they're like i think this happened yeah that's that's what this podcast has proven time and time again (laughs) (laughs) sometimes even five years ago it can be uh kind of a struggle yeah Yeah. i think about i thought about this yesterday when i saw um uh there's like a some charm actress actresses who were on charmed like arguing about who forced who off of the show? And um, <laughs> like, I think I think it was. Sha- I don't never watch Charmed, just to be clear here. But Shannon Doherty, I think, accused Alyssa Milano of getting her booted off the show. And Alyssa Milano made the point of like, well, this was twenty five years ago, and so you know, if you didn't talk about it then, and like, uh, you know, now it just seems like revisionist history because it's so long ago that no one can remember it as clearly as you know as, mm. as they otherwise might. And I thought. I thought it was interesting because I'm not saying that, you know, whether she's right or wrong, I have no fucking idea. But I just thought it's kind of a good point. When it's that long ago, it does kind of become just so murky that having a, you just, you can't even trust what feel like your own crystal clear memories of something. Yeah. Just, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's, that is definitely what this podcast is going to be like in 20 years time <laughs> when I'm like, well, it all started due to my love of Onimusha too. So <laughs> <laughs> you'll have an exact record of what you said 20 years prior that listeners can pull up and, yeah. and tell you. Yeah. The creation of Games Court uh, will be arguing over who, who, you know, who was responsible for that disaster. Basically that will happen. Um, no, that's interesting, Jeremy. That's uh yeah, that's um that kind of makes sense, I guess. But uh, yeah. Okay. So, what happens to a piece after it's written? What does the edit process look like for a website versus a magazine? That's something else I wanted to talk about. So I think that, yeah, so a writer would submit something and then it really, I think this really depends on your time, your timeline. If it's a cover feature, chances are it's been done very quickly and it needs to be designed and sent very quickly. And I think in some ways cover features are sort of the easiest to edit as well because there's only, you know, if, if quotes are doing the, the telling for you, you're not really going to, you might edit down a quote a little bit or condense it just so um just for sort of space reasons but the content of them is kind of like what the point of the piece is to a large degree so that that can be very fast but other types of features can take longer um or you know maybe like um i think word count is like a key part here as well so uh you would go you would hand over let's say a piece comes in it's very long you hand it over to a designer it comes back and then in indesign what it will do is it will show the pages as they'll be printed out um but um you can click on the text box and it will show you how much over it is and there'll be this white space off to the side of indesign that has fucking a wall of words on it and then your sub editor will do their best to chop it down but then it might come back to you because they can no longer chop it down even further to to make it fit the space and you'd ideally want to give it another two pages but you don't have an, another spare two pages to give it in your flat plan so that can be quite complicated. Um, but Matthew, how do you find, what do you remember of that that edit process for a magazine when a, a feature would come back? I, I don't know if I particularly kind of cover myself in, in glory here, but uh, I was I was a bit of a bad like in-house editor for things. I wasn't always the most collaborative editor and kind of remain that way now. In an ideal world, you'd have infinite time to be going back and forth, but often we were so up against it I was uh, often taking a kind of hatchet to stuff myself, which I know loads of writers absolutely hate. And 
I don't like it when it happens to, to my writing, but that's, you know, those those were the conditions in which we worked. With stuff like that, I could help with punching it up a bit, trying to, just trying to make it a bit more, like, entertaining or kind of zippy or whatever. We never had anything too, like, wider than art. We tended to use a very small pool of trusted freelancers who tended to get it right. Like, if you got it right once, you were basically in with us for, like, the next five years, which is why, like, so much of our stuff was done by, like, Chris Schilling and Rich Stanton. You know, they were just the safest of hands yeah i know what you mean like trusted writers key part of um of how this stuff gets made for sure it's like um there's a logistical sort of like dependency element you have i certainly found a pc gamer it's very hard to forward plan on features as much as i'd like because mm. i didn't have a features editor and i was doing the features my myself in terms of ideation until um phil savage joined the magazine which um which helped um, us get ahead a little bit more but it was always hard anyway for like um, anyone to find the capacity to think beyond the issue you were working on there was no like there was no high level thinking about where to go next may, other than maybe the cover feature where you were talking to publishers about my, what might be coming down the line so yeah um tricky for sure on website side so jeremy you've done a bit of this web editing um this side of things but I found this interesting because in that I, I I found that you were editing against people's attention span in some ways. Mm. You just you knew that they probably weren't going to read more than like I don't know. I felt like uh, uh, topping out about sixteen hundred words as as much as I could generally felt like I could get away with on a on a website. Like with some exceptions on PC Gamer for sure, but definitely was on Tech Radar. I thought, well, this can only go on for so long probably, and so that becomes cha- a, a challenge in the sense of how will you keep people's attention that sort of thing how do you make the kind of like headline right for a, a website because you know generally speaking your your your, fe- your feature headlines might be a bit more conceptual for a magazine or just like a couple of words or that sort of thing to tr- just try and grab attention off the page very different because you've got google algorithms to thinking about so you've got to have like the name of the game in the feature headline and mm. you've got to and from there you've got to have a little bit of spice to get people to click so complicated but what do you make of that side of things yeah obviously you don't have the maximum word count which is such like a practical concern in mags but you know i think like that's also a a benefit in some ways and i sort of brought like a magazine attitude to web editing where like like i do believe like it's rare that a piece isn't made better by having to cut it down a little and um it's you know it can be painful as as a writer when you see something's been cut down and you're like oh does that mean i i did a bad job and i was also always at pains to talk to writers and explain why i'd made those decisions i probably took too much time doing that even but I, I, you know it was important to me to like um to point out like the reason these cuts are made is because i can see what the central idea of your piece is and these elements are getting in the way like if if we cut some of these bits then we get a an undiluted version of the thing we're getting across and that's better and that's that can be hard to instill online where there's no word count and often like you get these sort of bloated features which are designed to sort of stay at the top of google and they end up getting longer and longer and like inheriting those as an editor is quite weird you're like okay we've got sort of 10,000 words on i don't know the best cat games or whatever the witcher 4 the witcher 4 <laughs> which we have, have no details on and yeah you have to kind of like figure out how do we how do we balance the priorities here and make sure this is readable and that like somebody reading it would come away with a good impression of what 
our site is about. I always have my limitations as well with editing where this is where my sort of like intellectual limits come into play as well, where I don't have the attention span to properly edit one of those SEO sort of like headline kind of pieces. And so they would always end up being the most like awful garbage or there'd be like incongruous bits and pieces of it where I'm like, OK, this release date sections, bits of text are being repeated down here. I found updating SEO pieces was where I did my worst editing, actually. And I think that most people, most writers do because you're yeah. trying to work out what google's made up ridiculous rules are that they just change on a dime and don't explain properly Oof. ever are and so that was kind of like the push and pull in my head a little bit of like okay well creative energy might as well go into the the good stuff but yeah it's that's where i wouldn't cover exactly some myself in glory exactly but yeah so i guess like along similar lines less traditional types of feature how do you make a good version of a list feature for example which you know you mentioned it there jeremy but it feels like it's junk content in principle because you know list features we know are sort of like seo gold but they are also really important because they are the bread and butter of your your site in terms of well there's a few different reasons they're important but you know they are they they make money because they're going to be the most clicked features and therefore they're going to generate a lot of ad revenue for you but they're also it's really important for if you're a games website for your best pc games feature to be really good for example or the best fps games and that sort of thing they are signature pieces in a way that convey the values of your your site and your team and what is important to you as a mm. brand so how do you think that you make those good um jeremy what's uh, you've obviously we've done a whole a fair bunch of these so what is that what does a good version of a list feature look like yeah so i guess what you're fighting against is the is a, a sense that it's just kind of feels a bit empty and that it's just kind of yeah, filling a, a slot, but that I feel like list features really lend themselves to comedy because they have that sort of that slightly throwaway feel, lets you not sweat too much and, you know, get too kind of um bogged down in things and, and have fun with it. Like the the most the most red feature I will ever write was um which fall guy are you? For um PC Gamer. <laughs> Um, which was an idea my wife had. I've got to give her credit for that. And I'm pretty proud of that one. Like, it was very silly and sort of had some dark existential humor in there. And people obviously, like, at a time when everyone was playing Fall Guys, they did actually kind of recognize these archetypes and different ways of playing. And, like, you know, pick out, like, oh, there's there's the guy who sort of waits on the line to grab people and hurl them off. And what does it say about them? that that's how they choose to live their life and this kind of thing like <laughs> you would never write in that way in like an edge cover feature because you feel like you've got to kind of take things a little more seriously but in that format you can kind of muck about <laughs> in a positive way yeah that's interesting what about you matthew do you ever get involved in these kinds of features but i suppose at endgamer you probably did make a few list oh, features yeah right? i mean yeah, lists were, lists were like bread and butter. I I love I love a list feature. Um, I think as a technical like writing exercise, writing really concisely and like nailing the appeal of the game in like a hundred words, that's a that's a great task. You know, I I enjoyed doing it in fifteen words in the directory, but a list is like a more substantial version of that. I was really into list craft in terms of the importance of like the hundredth game in a top hundred list. 
we would always talk about you know do you do you throw something in like shocking to upset people you know do you kind of defy expectations do you do you actually take something that should be in the top 10 and put it in at 100 just to say like all bets are off and this is happening and you kind of like lean into the feature you know you, you sort of lean forward you're like locked into it and the art of standing out as a list when it is on paper such a vanilla feature is really fun working now in more in the video space where like lists are you know huge business and there's there's loads of channels list uh, built almost exclusively on list features you know outside xbox outside extra you know they've they've done big lists and i've i wrote a couple of scripts for them when i was doing freelance and the exercise there was a bit like actually when we had rob pearson on the podcast and he was talking about the kind of art of trying to kind of find an, a new angle or a kind of, uh, you know, a weird gaming habit that just triggered something in everyone's minds, you know, that that, that there's the, the challenge of that is one thing, but also just the opportunity to flex the weirdest corners of your gaming knowledge and really dip into something specific when you're talking about those ultra-specific YouTube lists seven most cursed hats in gaming or whatever and you're like have i got seven in me can i genuinely think of seven really interesting hats but when you do it you're like yes fucking knowledge this is amazing this is this is why i played games for 30 years so i could write about these hats right now um and so yeah like i i I had no shame in it i think where it becomes garbage is is the the people who don't respect the lists and do treat it as just an exercise and like well we have to have these for seo purposes and you end up with basically everyone repurposing the same list and all this consensus are like these are the 10 best stealth games and it's always the same fucking things that you read over and over again and that really bums me out yeah yeah there's there's room for there's room for immense craft if you if you truly respect the list. Yeah, and yeah. there's a long tradition of them in in mags. Like when I was twelve or thirteen, I would read, you know, Q magazine's fifty best albums of whenever, and like learn a lot and absorb the craft of that short form writing. And yeah, it, it isn't just like, oh, this this um you know this fulfills an online need. Like there's a reason that lists have happened for for decades in in entertainment journalism and they can be really good absolutely i think it's, I, I do agree with what you're saying there matthew where i think there are just some you know sort of like you see these like junk factory seo articles when we did the sega episode with ash i was looking up like what the consensus best sort of sega games are and i, I was looking for that lived in experience that we kind of got from ash when he was talking about those games yeah. and it is quite hard to seek out and instead it becomes like you say like the self-perpetuating same 10 or so games where you don't necessarily feel like you're getting that that sort of like nutritional yeah. value from the entries themselves and yeah yeah it's it's but the, what i loved about that ash episode is that and, and this is hard to do in a written list is you also had the opportunity in the space to say you know these are my 10 but you know not these games for this reason you know like it's equally interesting why a sega person wouldn't pick sonic the hedgehog say and that's maybe like you know a list can't encompass everything it isn't but i i I am almost as interested in that yeah definitely the honorable mentions was definitely like uh was almost the the sort of like classic top 10 sega list in itself wasn't it like it was you know having sonic and yakuza not on that list for example yeah I, i i agree it's sort of like i think it's when you can use that tiny space of like words to 
properly communicate your authority and experience and you know it like doing that concisely really is like you say matthew just an art form so yeah i agree i love a, i love a list feature they are probably the it's still probably the thing i you know the things i read the most i'll i'll check out you know sort of like vultures best tv shows of the year to to source recommendations i'll read everyone's best films of the year list i read so many a, a game of the year list last year because last year's games were so there were so many of them that it was it was challenging to find people who are outside of the narrative are talking about the same five or six games that had come to dominate the year mm. the, the you know the the zeldas and the um and the boulder skate threes of the of 2023 so yeah hugely important for sure um Okay, so last question then. Are there any white whale features you want to land yourself at yourselves? Matthew, I feel like you have done this with Shu Takumi a little bit. Do you think that got something out of your system, ticking that off? Yes, in terms of talking to him. Uh, like, there's, there's, a, there's a version of that feature where somehow I am in Japan with Shu Takumi, a translator, and we get to, like, not talk in a, in a blank Capcom office, but... You get to hang out, you know, almost like those Archipel videos. I want to talk to Shutakumi in a fucking bookshop, you know. I want him to show me stuff that he likes. I want to know more about him. That's just because I'm nosy. One thing I've always wanted to do, years ago, I remember Edge doing a feature about the state of, of like, British racing game studios. And it was, like, a round table with four people from it. And ever since then, I've... I've been really big into the idea of rivals coming together to talk craft, which doesn't happen very often. PC Gamers organised a few good panels like this at GDC, actually, where I say rivals, but people from similar, you know, similar genres come together and, and talk about them. Maybe that's stepping aside as a writer and letting them do all the work. But as a reader, I would certainly want to read like, you know, I've, I've long dreamt of doing basically that that same edge feature. But for the writers of Japanese crime games, you know, I would love Shutakumi and Mr. Danganronpa, maybe even throw Yuji Horii, who did the Portopia serial murder case, which is like the visual novel, which kind of kicks off a lot of people's interest in the genre. Just to, to hear people who've all done the same job talk about it yeah uh i'd love that you know almost like the collective works of that they do in edge but like for a genre kind of step forwards beyond that even yeah yeah weirdly that is kind of a thing in in film journalism right like actors on actors is a big right it it helps when those people are celebrities but it feels like it is sort of uncapitalized space in games for whatever reason I agree like the uh ben affleck interviewing david fincher was a fun one from a few years ago <laughs> and fincher just giving him shit which he likes to he likes to do but again it's that that sort of access that yeah i mean you just it it, it tickles something in your brain it doesn't feel like they're just campaigning for you right. know f- it doesn't feel like they're just selling something you know um but you know like imagine like miyazaki talking to like anuma about like adventure games yeah you know? like oh my god it would be th- like Oh, they'd have so much to say to each other, surely, you know? Yeah, it's, it's yielded, just, in the recent years, just so many good moments of actors interviewing actors from that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, um, I agree. Jeremy, how about you? Is there any kind of... Do you have any white whales? I have interviewed a lot of my kind of gaming heroes and Harvey Smith and John Romero and, and people like that. There is one I picked up through writing about System Shock, which was Terry Brogius. I never managed to pin her down she doesn't do interviews as far as i can tell um she was the voice of showdown but she's like a really fascinating figure as you know a 
a woman in games when there weren't so many of those and was in a grunge band in the 90s and then you know worked in kind of audio looking glass but also uh, was a writer on early thief and like helped come up with the sort of weird lynchian tone of that stuff so like that i know there's an amazing profile interview waiting there but like and um you know i've, I've not been able to to nail that that's another tricky part about pitching is like i've definitely pitched that and then not been able to deliver on it there's this weird right. sort of dance where like you can't go to an interviewee before you've approached an editor and be like, I'm going to write about you for PC Gamer because PC Gamer hasn't agreed to it at that point. But equally, when you go to PC Gamer and say, I'm going to interview this person, hopefully, you also haven't nailed it down at that point either. So sometimes you just have to kind of like move on. <laughs> be sad that you weren't able to uh, to deliver the thing you'd hoped. Yeah, for sure. All right, so yes, uh, white whales. There's there's many, there's many more besides as well. I, I think I would love to do the. I think I, I still think that you know people like reading the the definitive interview with X of, of you know somebody who made a game like made important games in the nineties or or the noughties and and you know and go out and get that stuff. Like I absolutely love the um, Simon Parkins podcast interview with uh, Peter Molyneux, for example. Mm. I mean, I still feel like I learned things from that that. I hadn't seen him talk about for many interviews. Talk about his time as an EA executive, I found really interesting. And how he sort of like, I, I think the story of how he sort of fibbed to get the studio going, just like pretending to be a game developer is just like a, a really just wonderful bit of like Brit soft lore and never gets boring to hear that story. But then also as people get older, their reflections on how things panned out in or certain decisions they've made does change. So then, you know, the, yeah, that that means it's always it's always interesting to hear from those people. Okay, that brings us to the end of the episode then. So, uh, yes, I think we covered a lot of territory there. A little bit of scattergun, I guess, in that second half. But do you think we nailed it, Matthew? Do you think we covered what it's like there to write features, the challenges? I think so. There? If this was a feature submitted to me, I'd tweak a few sentences, <laughs> but I'd definitely send it to print. Yeah, cut it down by 500 words. But uh, otherwise, yeah, pretty much there. Uh, Jeremy, what do you think we covered every area there? Is there anything unresolved for, for you from, from that discussion? I don't think so. It felt good to, to talk about the craft you know, for an audience that I know is interested in, in hearing it as well. So that was fun. Yeah, it's been a long time since we did a Magcraft kind of episode. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Earlier on when we used to do a lot of this, you sometimes get, oh, I wish they wouldn't bollock on about magazines as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, that did happen, didn't it? And then I think... Yeah, and then we sort of stopped doing it for a long time. But so, yeah. Yeah. I... Sorry, that one guy. <laughs> Sorry, that, well, that one guy was... who listened to a podcast called The Back Page and was upset at the magazine chat. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like it's a bit lighter these days. I guess we've kind of kept the mag chat to when we have a guest on and and we talk about it that way. And I think some people miss want us to have more of those episodes. But uh, yeah, it's um it's always a tricky balance for us between the right kind of subject, someone who comes on who knows what the podcast is or or engages with it, and then yeah, it's actually it's weirdly harder to to figure out than you you think it is. We also don't want it to just be a procession of our pals talking about stuff that we worked on and have similar stories i don't know it's, it's a, a delicate yeah. balance but yeah i've told all my fun stories as well we've only got the sad stuff left <laughs> exactly you, you, you say that matthew but you came out with the i sang a song about funerals with alexa chunk a few weeks ago <laughs> i couldn't believe that you'd kept that in for almost four years and, yeah, yeah how, did, how did that never come up 
well, you know, that's, that's like that's one of my lower tier anecdotes. I think that's like the architect in the Matrix just going back in and adding a bit more detail to you know what I mean. Like this, this person could just use a little bit more backstory. So we're just gonna we're gonna roll out the Alexa Chung DLC for Matthew Castle. Yeah, and just sort of see how that goes. I did. I did say to Samuel, <laughs> maybe he's just started making these up. But uh, but then <laughs> no, that's I I swear that I believe real. it's real for two reasons. A, you're not the type of man to start making shit up on your podcast, and B, it just has the ring of a classic castle story where it's like it's adjacent to something glamorous. It's like oh, this person became a model and presenter, oh, but you're man. focusing on like the local newspaper story that covered the production and how good the amateur production was. You're like, yeah, this is classic, Matthew. This is real. This is that's a very a very astute observation <laughs> of how I how I see the world and where I place myself in. Yeah, that's a great yeah, that was a, a wonderful story. I think like Alexa Chung's now come up on like four episodes in a row as well. <laughs> oh, very cursed. Um okay, thank you so much for listening. This podcast, you can find us on social media at BackpagePod on Twitter and Blue Sky. You can also support us financially at patreon.com slash backpagepod if you'd like to get two additional episodes a month. For the £4.50 XL tier, you can. And uh, you can also email us at backpagegames at gmail.com if you'd like to send us some longer correspondence for a future mailbag. Uh, Matthew, where can people find you on social media? I'm at Mr. Basil underscore pesto on Twitter. And uh, on Blue Sky, I'm Mr. Basil pesto, no underscore. <laughs> a piece of me dies every time um, you, you say that. But um, yeah, um, that's good. Uh, Jeremy, how about you? Uh, I'm at Jeremy underscore Peel on Twitter. And uh, yeah, if you if you want to back me on Patreon, I'm patreon.com forward slash the Peel Perspective. And I'm Samuel W. Roberts on all platforms. If you want to go find me and hear me waffling about uh, all kinds of bullshit, then um, that is available to you. Thank you so much for listening. I will be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.